I've been a Christian for about three months. And my friend, who had been influential in my coming to faith, was taking a course on how to study the Bible and interpret the Bible at our Christian college. And I thought, hey, I should probably sign up for that. You know, Christians are supposed to read the Bible. So I go to class the first day and uh, realized, you know, these were all the future preachers, and I was the the pagan heathen that had been a Christian for about 10 hours, and um, I was out of my league. And so the first day, they said, you got to pick one passage from the New Testament, and um, you'll spend the whole semester studying, and you'll write a thesis paper on that passage. So, all right, cool, I can do that. So I know nothing about the Bible, and it just happened to be in First Peter reading with a friend, and I went, ah, this passage, First Peter 3, um, 18 through 22, that'll be my passage. And so the next day we go to class and we, we all turn in the passage we're going to study. And, you know, the, the smart students had turned in like John 3.16 and Genesis 1.1 and um, Psalm 19. And I turn that in. And the professor looks at me and he goes, congratulations, you picked the hardest passage in the Bible. I was like, can I change it? He was like, no. So Congratulations. You've come to study the hardest passage in the Bible. And your guide may not be the best. But we'll see if we can navigate this together. Today I want us to talk about something that's very uncomfortable and often intangible for us, and that's persecution. We in America... We in the West have been blessed for centuries, really, to believe in Jesus Christ and be a part of his church and follow after him at a time when it's acceptable, often valued, and often encouraged. But if you dig deeply into the history of the church, you will find that Christianity began not as a blessed majority, but as a persecuted minority. And I would say to all of us that if we would take off our us-focused vision of only seeing the world as where we are right now, we would recognize that in many parts of our world right now, our faith is a persecuted minority. And if we have any awareness of our culture, I would say without going too far out on the limb, that short of some divine intervention, our faith is returning to the status of a persecuted minority. And you might be saying, well, thanks for the encouragement, Pastor. And I'm just going to blame Peter for that. It's Peter's fault. He, He went there. But hear me. Hear me clearly. If our vision of the faith is that we are only able to believe that God is good and Jesus is real, and be led to joyful worship when life is good, that vision of the faith will not hold up under persecution. Let me say that one more time. 
If our understanding of the faith is that we're only able to see that God is good, that Jesus is real, and be led to joyful worship in life only when life is good, that vision of the faith, I would actually say is unbiblical, but it's unsustainable. It will not stand. And I'm just not going to bury the lead today. Let's just go right at it, okay? We live in the southern cultural Christian American suburbs. By the way, I pick on the suburbs a lot. I love the suburbs. I live here. I chose to live here. I chose by God's leading to plant a church here. So I don't feel like it's evil to live in the suburbs and we need to repent and all move to East Nashville and overpay for our homes. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that if we're going to live here, we have to know the shortcomings of living here, and we have to be called to faithfulness. The suburbs are about comfort. The suburbs are about security. The suburbs are about shielding. The suburbs are about me enjoying the fruits of my hard labor for me and my family. And no one better stand in the way of that. So look, if you're blessed and you have a good family and you have a good income and you have a nice house and you have good neighbors and your kids are enjoying life and things are going well and you can get on and off the phone with Comcast in under five hours, God's being really gracious to you. But the question is, would you worship God just as much if every element of your life got flipped on its head? So the response to today's message is not repent of my abundance, repent of my peace, repent of my blessing, repent of my ease. The response to today's message is deep in my own soul, could I believe that God is good if I became Job? That is, if I lost everything. Could I walk by faith and worship the Lord if everything that I hold dear is crumbling under my feet? Can I believe that God is meticulously sovereign and providential over every detail of his world when every detail seems to be going against me? See, it's easy to say God is great, God is good when life is good. It's easy to say God is great, God is good when we're being encouraged and built up for walking with Jesus. But what stands when it becomes hard and suffering becomes real is the test of what we really believe. I told you, we're just, we're just diving in. Now I'm all up in your life now, right? So here's what Peter says. The purpose of this passage that we're looking at today is to help, encourage, and equip Christians to face persecution by walking deeply with Jesus. The purpose of this passage is to encourage, equip, and help Christians to 
in, to engage and endure persecution by walking deeply with Jesus. And there's a lot of thorny parts in here that might take us away from that, but that is the point. When hardship comes, you need Jesus more. When hardship comes, you need Christ. When hardship comes, the wheat and the chaff will be separated. When hardship comes, what is real and what is fake will be made evident. Hardship is like a light shining in darkness to say, let us see what is real here. So, the purpose of this passage is to help Christians. These Christians are currently being persecuted for believing in Jesus. Help Christians navigate persecution by walking deeply with Jesus. So first point, persecution. One word, persecution. What is Peter talking about? He's talking about persecution. Let's look at the text. Chapter 3, verse 13, he asks the rhetorical question that frames the whole thing. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? You know the answer to the guys who got this letter first? Well, it looks like everybody's trying to harm us, Peter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Peter is saying that Christians will suffer for their faith. That's persecution. And he's saying that in Christ, there is the strength to endure and to navigate and to move forward. That is the main point and the main thrust of this passage. Now let's define some terms, shall we? We must, if we're going to make sense of this passage, understand the difference between persecution, hardship, and nuisance. Okay? We must understand the difference between persecution, hardship, and nuisance. And I'm going to guess that many of us call nuisance hardship and suffering. Some of us might even call it persecution. So we got to define our terms to know what Peter's talking about. Persecution is suffering directly related to belonging to Jesus or holding a biblical conviction. Persecution is, is suffering directly related to belonging to Jesus or holding a biblical conviction. So just to use an obvious one, when ISIS beheads Christians because they're Christians, that's persecution. When someone is terminated from their job because they have a biblical stance on a conviction on morality and it causes them to not do their job and they're terminated for saying, I will be biblical, that is persecution. Dare I say, well, I won't go there. I was about to get too 
anyway. Okay. Hardship or suffering is anything endured in a fallen world. Hardship or suffering is those really difficult, hard realities that we are led to endure in a fallen world. The death of a loved one. That's hardship. That's suffering. The loss of a a job, wondering how you could provide for your family. That's suffering. Not persecution necessarily, but suffering. A wayward child who will not return to the Lord and will not walk in joy with his family, that's suffering. Now let's talk about nuisance. Nuisance is an inconvenience or an annoyance. So if Kroger puts the wrong cheese in your click list order, that's not hardship, that's not suffering, and that's not persecution. That's just a little nuisance that we have to deal with in life. And if you think that's suffering, your enchanted little world needs to be rocked. Someone cutting you off on Vietnam veterans is not suffering. It's just nuisance. And if they have a bunch of bumper stickers that says there is no God, that's still not persecution. It's just bad driving. It's a nuisance. And so my fear today is that we're going to take the nuisances in our lives like me spending six hours with Comcast on Wednesday, or, or me buying and installing a, a new TV yesterday only to realize it didn't have an antenna hookup, so I had to box it up and take it back to Sam's in all the Armageddon crowd and do it over again. That's not suffering, and that's most certainly not persecution. That's just nuisance. Welcome to the world, people. But often we're able to live such a a joyful, free, benevolent, ease life that we think that's suffering. That's just nuisance. And if we're going to make sense of these passages, we have to understand that nuisance just is welcome to the world. Suffering is something that God allows in our lives that always has the purpose of allowing us to see his goodness and walk with him. And persecution is something directly aimed at us because we claim faith in Jesus or because we're being faithful to the Bible. And if we can't make sense of those distinctions, I don't think this passage is ever going to make sense to us, okay? So Peter's not trying to encourage soccer moms that had to spend a little too much time getting out of Drake's Creek Park. I don't think Peter cares. But you shouldn't sin and honk your horn and... Give unholy gestures to people while you're there. Peter would care about that. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people that are losing their lives, their livelihood, their income, and their place in the world because they've professed faith in Jesus. That's who he's talking to. And that's who he says, look to Jesus and navigate everything. Now, I don't want to be misheard, so hear me clearly. Jesus is with you when you endure nuisance. Jesus is with you when you endure suffering, and Jesus is with you when you endure persecution. 
But I just think we gotta understand the difference, right? right? Like, like sometimes, anyway, I'm just gonna stop. So persecution at the time that Peter was writing was a, was a tangible, real thing that Christians in many places were enduring. And I fear that there's an evangelical understanding of reality where we only see reality through the lens of Southern American Christianity and we forget that around the world right now, there are brothers and sisters who are losing their lives, their livelihood, their homes, their families, schooling for their kids and a future for their kids because they claim allegiance to Jesus. So we don't have to yearn for persecution, but we have to understand that persecution is a very real reality where the faith is all around this world and it very well may be headed our way. So Peter is writing to those who are facing persecution. And, and, and look, he's really encouraging them to make sure that they are being like Christ and are enduring hardship, not because they're mean people, but because they're being like Jesus. Make sure they're enduring hardship for being like Christ. So he says, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He says, it's better to suffer for doing good than for evil. He says, the time has long passed to live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Don't join them in these things, but they may malign you. This is chapter 4, verse 4. They may malign you because you won't join them. So Peter is very concerned that God's people are walking with Jesus and living lives consistent with the Word of God and that they are enduring hardship because of that and not because of something else. So as we talk about persecution, here's the question. Do I know Jesus Christ? Am I believing in Him as the one true Redeemer, Lord, and Savior of all? Am am I connected and committed to Him? And then the second question, which is a lot harder, is my life being transformed by the gospel in such a way that my life looks biblical? My life looks like Jesus, and my life looks like that of one who is devoted to Christ above all? all else? So persecution is a reality. So that leads to the second point. Responding to persecution. Responding to persecution. Peter gives them some very tangible, and I'm not sure how helpful things that they need to do in the face of persecution. Number one, verse 14, have no fear of them. Seems pretty easy, right? Have no fear, huh? I will not fear you. 
Got a gun pointed in my head? No fear. Threatening to fire me? No fear. Threatening to kick me out of my apartment? No fear. Threatening to burn down my house? No fear. Threatening to torture my kids and my wife? No fear. I will have no fear. Simple, right? Anybody says to me, like, what are you talking about, man? So we have to face persecution with a vision toward the Lord. If the Lord is with us, who is there to harm us if we are zealous for what is good? Therefore, because we know the Lord and we know our status before him, we need not fear. We need not be troubled. Peter seems to believe that faith in Jesus will give us confidence to endure persecution without fear and anxiety and overwhelmed like my life is going to fall apart right now. I have to admit, that seems foreign to this person. But Peter seems to believe that if we, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, we will be able to face persecution without being consumed by fear and anxiety and trouble. So, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That is how we face persecution without fear or without being troubled. If you like to write in your Bible, underline, highlight, highlight that. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If Christ is set apart in your life as the one who is above all, as the one who is over all, as the one who is in all, as the one who is with us in all things, as the one who is for us, as the one who has redeemed us, as the one who has purchased our eternity. That's what it means to set him apart as holy. If we, if he is there for us, if that's where he stands in our mindset, then we can face hardship and persecution without fear or without overwhelming anxiety. We can cry out to him. So first, we respond to persecution by fighting fear and anxiety with looking to Christ. Second, we give an explanation of our hope. Second, Peter says, give an explanation of your hope. Hope. Now, if I did a show of hands right here, who in this room feels comfortable to walk out that door and explain to the police officer that's helping you across the road the hope that you have in Jesus that makes you want to come to church on a Sunday morning? If I gave you all that assignment, how many of you would be like, I can do that? I'm ready for that. And how many of you would be like, man, I'm going through the fire hall. 
going the other way. How many of you would be like, I don't feel comfortable with that. For whatever reason, there's this idea that being able to explain the power of Christ, the hope of Christ, the love of Christ, the salvation of Christ in clear and tangible ways is for special people. But it's not. Peter says, when you face persecution, set apart Christ, be bold, but be ready to give an explanation for the hope that is within you. All y'all. Every single one of you. So here's your church home week this week. Can I, in less than a minute, explain the hope that I have in Jesus? Can I, in less than a minute, explain the hope that I have in Jesus? Now, spouses, I encourage you, friends, Roommates, I encourage you to quiz one another. If you are going to take a biblical stance against something in the world, be prepared to make a biblical argument. Chapter and verse is helpful. In the South... Christians believe dot, dot, dot is a worthless statement. Worthless. Overused. Lost its meaning. Cliche. If you're going to take a biblical stance for something, be ready to explain yourself. Now my little Martin Luther's out here, my little firebrands, they're like, that's right! Defend the faith! Apologetics, baby! You know who I'm talking to. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Do you see what he's saying there? Defend the faith in such a way that you're not being an arrogant irritant who's making the faith unacceptable, but defend the faith in such a way that you're lifting high and honoring Christ. And if there's offense, the gospel offends. If there's offense, Jesus offends. You know who you are. Gentleness and respect. So some of you need to go gentleness and respect. Some of your takeaway from this point needs to be be able to, to give an account. Because some of us just flee off into passive silence because we don't want to be rude and arrogant. And that is not what Peter's saying. So set apart Christ as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense. And then Peter's going to add one more thing that's going to sting a little bit. And this is down in chapter 4. And he says this. Make sure that your life is bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Make sure that your life is not bound up in sin. He says, chapter 4, verse 3, The time to be like the Gentiles, that is those who don't know God, it's past. Do away with sensuality, with passions, with drunkenness, 
with orgies, with drinking parties, with lawless idolatry. Do away, verse 4, with living like those who don't know Christ. Be different because Jesus is working in your life. Let the Bible shape you. Let the Holy Spirit shape you. Let the fruits of the Spirit, that's Galatians chapter 5 in the 20s there, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Let those things shape you. Have you ever wondered why that gets thrown in there? Well, one, because Christ who is at work in someone's life is always changing that person's life. Second, and this is just a little pastoral push toward us, if our lives are characterized by sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, and we claim the name of Jesus, is he going to allow us to make peace with that? No, he's not. He's going to come and he's going to purge that out of us. Jesus purges sin out of his people. And so let's make sure that we're enduring hardship, if we're enduring hardship, because of faithfulness to Jesus and not because of some other reason. Final point. By the way, we got the clock fixed, so I do know what time it is. Final point. How do I do this, pastor? How do I do this? Looking to Jesus in persecution. Looking to Jesus in persecution. And I didn't mean to give all the hard stuff five minutes, but that's convenient for me. I'm just kidding. We'll do our best to dive into this. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that's thorny passage number 1. But notice what he's saying. He says, in your suffering, look to Jesus. Jesus suffered. They killed Jesus. They turned their back on Jesus. They took away his life. Jesus suffered great persecution for the cause of the kingdom of God. Sure, it was the will of God. Sure, it was planned by God before the foundation of the world. Sure, that's how our salvation was purchased. But Jesus endured it, and he endured it without sin. Look to Jesus. If they killed our Savior, look to him. Now, this Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? There's been several views historically, and I think the best one for us to rest on is this, that those who have endured great suffering and continued in the faith have had the nerve center, the power of sin, broken a little bit in their lives. The more we're willing to endure suffering for something, the more dearly we will hold it, the more we will value it, and the more we'll cling to it. And it seems that what Peter is saying is, those who suffer for the cause of Christ will see the power of sin diminish in them. So you know what your, your life might need is a little bit of persecution. I'm not saying go out and seek that, but I'm just saying there's a reason why the early church fathers said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
Because where persecution is great, fidelity to Jesus is great. Where persecution is great, faithfulness to the Bible is great. And Peter's just saying, it's hard to lose everything and walk with Jesus and love your sin as much as you used to. So Peter says, if you want to navigate persecution, look to Jesus. Okay, okay. What happened with Jesus? That's where we go back up to verses 18 through 22. What happened with Jesus? Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now just stop right there. Just stop right there. What's Peter saying? Jesus suffered for us so that we could be forgiven, made acceptable to God, made children of God, and made alive with Him in this life and the life to come. So we can look to Jesus to endure all things because Jesus has purchased a way for us to have life and life everlasting, to walk in the blessing of God now and forever, and to forever be His children. Therefore... Who is there to harm us? And then skip down to verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is alive and dwells now in the heavenly, eternal realm at the right hand of God where everything, angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to Him. Peter's saying there is great hope for navigating suffering through Jesus because Jesus has endured all things and Jesus reigns over all things. And if Jesus shed His blood for you, He will keep you for eternity. What do I have to fear? Where do I find? Have no fear. Don't be troubled. Make a defense with a good conscience. Turn away from your sin. Jesus freed me from sin. Jesus gave me a new hope. Jesus gave me new life. And Jesus will keep me for eternity. I suffer with Jesus. I suffer by looking to Christ. That's the power that sustains us. So if you're here today and you're exploring our faith, you're probably like, man, you are not giving a winsome welcome. Come and suffer with us. Yes, but come and suffer with he who will keep you walking in the blessing of God forever, who will keep you being loved by your creator forever, who will give you something better than this world could ever offer you, himself and his salvation. All right, so in two minutes or less, what about all that hard stuff in 19, 20, 21? Anybody, anybody interested? Anybody? Anybody? Bueller? 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 Okay. I'll just read it. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Clear enough. Let's go home. Okay. Historically, this bit of text has been understood in three ways. But remember, what's the point? What's the point of verses 19 through 21? 
It's to drive home the point of verses 18 and 22. This is where we let the Bible help us make sense out of difficult things. The point is, Christ has suffered to bring salvation, and Christ has gone into heaven where he reigns now over angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So verses 19, 20, 21, and 21 are intended to drive home this point that Jesus is supreme, Jesus is the Savior, Jesus reigns, and you can trust him even with losing your life. Now, how does he make that point? This passage has been interpreted many, many ways. Martin Luther, who had an opinion about everything, and a bold, strong, unyielding, I'm always right kind of opinion about everything, looked at this passage and said, no human can say with certainty what Peter meant. So welcome to the club. But here's two ways that this passage has been understood that I think are consistent with what's here. One is that when it says that in the Spirit, He proclaimed to the spirits in prison that didn't obey in the days of Noah, one way to understand this is that the Spirit of Christ spoke through Noah to those in the days of Noah who didn't accept Noah's message. Remember, Noah built an ark. God's going to destroy the world. Judgment is coming, right? And Noah said, run to the Lord and get on the boat, basically. And only eight people, Noah and his family, got on the boat and they took a bunch of animals with them and only they survived the judgment of God. So one interpretation of this passage is, is look, the Spirit of Christ, just like back in those days of Noah, professed, come aboard, the judgment of God is coming, but only those who were, who were in God's ark, who were in God's method of salvation, were delivered. And so then Peter is likewise saying, baptism now saves, he's not meaning that if you get baptized, you're you're now a Christian. He's not saying you can't be a Christian without getting the water on you. What Peter is saying is, identification with Jesus is the way to be delivered now. And if you identify with Jesus, he is with you forever, and you don't have to fear, even under persecution. That's one way that this passage has historically been understood. For the sake of time, we're going with that one because I think that's the most um, believable of the ways this passage has been understood. And if you'd like to talk more about all the ways it's been understood and argue in great detail about it, Stephen Carlson would love to go to lunch with you today. Stephen, hand up. Right there, Stephen. His son Tim will serve as MC and y'all can have a blast. I'm just kidding. If you have serious questions about this passage that I have not answered, I would love to talk with you. But for the sake of time, here's the point. It is the will of God that the people of God would endure hardship by looking to Christ and valuing his salvation more. Because Jesus has set us free. Oh, how I long for Redeemer to be a people that can endure all things because Christ is a great Lord.